Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Download more sermons or learn about the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene at our website, capenazarene.org. Here's this week's message. Today is uh, a unique Sunday in the life of the church. On uh, the church calendar, the Sunday before Lent is often called Transfiguration Sunday, which I know is quite a mouthful, but it is a, it is a, a Sunday marking a very specific moment in the life of Jesus, a moment that helps us understand who he is and who we are to be, a way in which how we see Jesus has transformed. Uh, he is still the same, but the figure of who he is has changed because of how we see or how we recognize him and how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And so this is the, the Transfiguration Sunday, and I will read that passage for you in just a moment. Have you ever had a moment where you've uh, somewhat, way in which you've known or seen somebody changes for you radically in some way. Perhaps some relationship you have with them, it changes uh, in a moment. Uh, for me, I, I remember when uh, I was in high school, I had a pastor who I really didn't get to know very much. Uh, he was... You know, he was—he was just the guy who preached every Sunday, while me and my friends were elbowing each other and giggling. And so, like you know, like I really didn't otherwise get to know him very much. But I still remember that uh, when I was out of seminary and and uh, 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 looking for, okay, where am I going to serve now, and where am I going to preach, and, and asking different district superintendents, you know, if I could serve on their district, and sending them out resumes. I remember one guy called me back. He said, "Hey, this." This pastor, who has since retired, who had retired, knew you and spoke highly of you. I'm like, wait, what? And it was my pastor from my youth, the pastor I had only had for a few years. I'm like, me? He hardly knew me. I hardly knew him. But all of a sudden, who he was kind of changed in my mind. Wait a minute. He's, he's going to put in a good word for me? This is awesome. And all of a sudden, like, I started thinking back. And not just of the sermons I couldn't remember, but like of... Um, where were our connections? Where are our moments where, where we, we had opportunity to get to know each other? Because I was surprised that he would do that. My opinion of him changed. It, it, it shifted just a little bit. I want to read for you the uh, story in, in Mark. It starts with chapter 9. We are skipping ahead. We've just heard how Jesus is... Um, is the Son of God, how he's tempted and tried just like all of us, and how he enters into uh, the hardships of those around him and answers and presents God's grace in healing. And we're going to skip ahead to Mark chapter 9 for this Sunday. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and in the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. And then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he's going to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about him. Their understanding of Jesus is starting to take shape, starting to... uh, uh, it's starting to mold, but there's still a lot of questions. It's still coming to view. Uh, sometimes, again, what we know of someone changes. Sometimes it's for the better, like that first illustration we gave. Sometimes it's not. When uh, my first job after Jen and I got married, we're trying to figure, okay, now that we're married and living in an apartment, how are we going to make ends meet? How are we going to figure things out? The first job I got was uh, working at a distribution center at Sears. There was a shipping place where they filled all the stores around. I imagine, oh, I, I, it's a good thing I can, I can say that we know exactly what we're talking about. I'm kind of afraid, like, in another decade, I'm going to have to explain what Sears was. But, <laughs> but uh, I worked in this distribution center that, that helped uh, uh, to send things out. And my job there was to help the maintenance people have all the tools necessary and the uh, supplies necessary to fix all the missing parts in this distribution center. When I showed up, their storage room was a disaster, and they didn't know what tools they had, what parts they had, what pieces they had in order to fix all the gears and the belts and everything else that was moving product or the, or the forklifts or whatever other machinery they had on the property. And so I got hired on to make sense of all of that because a lot of times something would break and they say, okay, we need this part. And they'd go into that room and they'd be like, I don't know if we have it. Do we need to order a new one? And they'd spend half the day looking for a part only to realize maybe, maybe they do need to order or maybe they did find it, but a good part of the day was wasted looking for it. And so I made sense of that. And then I created a spreadsheet for them that, that, that let them know exactly how much of all these different parts of different sizes of different shapes that they had so that they could easily know oh we're out we need to order more before something breaks and things could just run a little bit more efficiently and they were excited about that that was my job and I did that and after a, not very long I got a job offer at the college I was at uh, to be the graduate assistant to work in, in the religion department I was like oh that's exciting with the very work with the very people who have just taught me this is what I want to do and I remember going back uh, to my coworkers at Sears and saying to them that I was leaving the job. And I remember the guy, my boss, had said, Oh no, you were going to save us. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, and so here I am. I have just let them down and I felt bad. And I was like, Well, uh, and after I left that day, I was like, okay, I won't have to face them again, you know, because I just felt so bad. I knew who I was had just changed. I didn't realize they thought so much was leaning, or at least the way they said it was, was leaning on me organizing, but they were thankful for what had been done. Sometimes what we understand of someone changes and shifts significantly. In the story of Jesus coming as the Messiah, they have signed up for a Messiah who's going to fix everything and fix it now. Fix all the issues they're facing in life right now. To to, to follow the Messiah, they are supposed to share in his glory and he is going to be triumphant right now in their life. Victory all the time. Always a mountaintop experience. This is what 
they thought they signed up for. When, they have, when all the crowds are coming and being healed, yes, God is moving. And so Jesus is like, okay, time for a mountaintop experience. And he takes him up on this mountain. And the scripture says he's transfigured, a word that means he, he takes on a, a new kind of form or appearance. And the way they see him changes. And it says his clothes are an example of this as they dazzle with a kind of whiteness no one could ever get. doesn't matter what kind of bleach you used. No clothes are going to get this white. And I want to tell you this is important. This is important for them. Like, to, to see this idea of cleanness and, and how bright his clothes are is, is a way for them of saying he is close to God. It's a way of saying he is as near and as close as he can be. Uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament, the, the kind of sacrifices they would look for out of the sheep that would be brought would be those who don't have any spots. Don't, those who don't have any mars, the purest of white, are those that are able to come and be close to God. So this, this idea of dazzling white clothes is this indication that God is here. There's a song that uh, I thought about after songs were uh, chosen, uh, which happens sometimes, but it's okay because I have a love-hate relationship with this song. <laughs> but there's a hymn that we sing that I, I like on the one hand, but on the other hand, the way I often think about that song, I don't like at all. It's the song, Tis a Glorious Church Without Spot or Wrinkle. And it's a, it's a fun little song that, 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 uh, for its time, and, and uh, it's a song that is thinking about uh, the church after Christ has redeemed it, and after Christ has returned. When the song came out, there are two ways of talking about the church. The church as it exists today, the phrase they used then was the church militant, and the church that would be after Christ came, and after all evil and sin is removed, the church triumphant. And so the hymn says, the chorus was, "'Tis a glorious church without spot, without wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And it's a wonderful little song about the hope of what God is going to do as he saves, sanctifies, and redeems the church at the end. That all sin and evil is removed, and it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. For that, I love it. But oftentimes, when I sing the song, I can't help but think, but there's a whole lot of spots and wrinkles in churches. (laughs) And, and, And you know what? I wouldn't have it any other way. I wouldn't have it any other way. Those spots and those wrinkles make us who we are. And one of the things that I've recognized is, is if we're serious about where God's grace goes to meet us, he meets us precisely where there's still spots to be clean. He meets us precisely where things aren't ironed out as neatly as we would want. And that's what I mean by wrinkles, not ironed. And so, uh, and so this is a, uh, so it's a great picture of... Uh, This idea that the church is one where we can go even when we don't have it all together because God is still with us is a good picture. So this image of the brightness of Jesus' clothes, this dazzling white or radiant white, is an indication in their mind of an absolute cleanliness, that there is an absolute holiness of divinity itself, of closeness to God. In the Old Testament, so much of what's understood to be holy, so much that is understood to become holy, or worthy to draw near to the temple of God, is based, is based around cleanliness practices. And it's based upon abstaining from practices that would make someone dirty or to make someone unclean. 
And unclean is the literal phrase for not being able to draw near to God. So when you hear about how clean Jesus is in this descriptor, think close to God. He is radiating and showing his divinity on this mountaintop with the disciples. And appearing next to him, it appears that they see Elijah and Moses. And now the story of Elijah, which we heard when Jen read, it was a story which of one of the greatest prophets. And the legend was that he had been taken up into heaven and that Elijah did not face death and he is with God. And as they anticipated and waited for the Messiah, then it made sense if the Messiah comes from God, then the, that the Elijah the prophet, who has been guiding us towards God, would come before him to help us prepare for the Messiah. These, the Elijah and Moses are the heroes of faith, the ones that have always guided us to understand who God was. And so there was, of course, a legend, a story, a, a, a faith, a belief that Elijah and Moses will come before the Messiah does. These are the heroes of the faith and people they believe would herald the new Messiah. And so they're up on the mountain and they're like, wait a minute, I see two figures. They look like Elijah They look like Moses, and they are there with Jesus. And they start to see, indeed, this Jesus who they've been following, who's been doing these miracles, is not just an unusual person. It's not just a miraculous person, not just someone with uh, with powers. This is someone who is manifesting the power of God as the Messiah who has come to change the world. And when they are there, they hear the voice proclaim, a voice that, is, that says words very similar to the baptism, when we were supposed to say, wait a minute, God is here in this one. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Just in case there was any doubt from before when the dove landed on him, just in case there was any doubt from watching the miracles, I want you to see this one is my son. See, now you see him with all the people you expected to see before. And then they looked around after that, and now there is only Jesus. And they recognized maybe this was a vision. Maybe this was God allowing us to see what we had expected to see so we would face the one real truth, and that's this. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our Messiah. And Jesus says to them, as they're on their way down the mountain, they're trying to make sense of this. Okay, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Does that mean you're going to take care of everything now? Does that mean all the problems of today and all the sins and the worries and the sickness of today are going to be taken care of? And and they're wondering what this means. And Jesus says to them, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. This will be the last time in the Gospel of Mark he tells them to be quiet because we've seen that happen again and again in the Gospel of Mark so far. But he says, don't say anything until after the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And then they find themselves wondering, what does that mean? What does he mean, raised from the dead? Well, we just saw figures of Moses and Elijah. Maybe he's being figurative. And so they find themselves wondering, what does he mean by this? Does he mean, uh, you know, is is something else going to change? What does he mean? Does he mean actually dead? He couldn't mean actually dead. He's the Messiah. He can't die, right? And so he's just shown himself to be in the presence of God. They're wrestling with this. Author N.T. Wright has said, you know, a lot of times people look back on these old writings, look back on ancient history and think that they're less scientific than we are. 
And he says, I don't think that's the case. I think they were just as doubtful of a resurrection as people are today. Jesus says, don't tell anyone until I'm raised from the dead. And they're going, wait, what? People don't raise from the dead. That just doesn't happen in our world. We've never encountered that. We've never experienced that. What a strange saying. And T. Wright says this in order to illustrate the point that the resurrection then is indeed a statement of amazement about what has been seen. It is not a, it's not a figure of speech. It's not a wishful thinking because they, just like us, would on a day-to-day basis be just as doubtful. But, and so they hear the words of Jesus and they're struggling with that. What does he mean? be raised from the dead. That doesn't happen. I want to tell you a little bit about what it means to be near the dead, what it might mean for the dead to be raised. Last week, we talked about Jesus healing a leper, and I told you you could go to Leviticus chapter 13, and you could, uh, uh, you could read about all the uncleanliness statutes around healing this leper and what that person needed to do. And in the chapters around that, you'll see many more things that make someone unclean. Not only open skin and open wounds, but dead bodies, fluids, anything at all uh, regarding what comes out of a person makes somebody unclean. And the dead were considered unclean. If you had had any touch, any uh, uh, nearness to something that had died, it would keep you from coming to the temple and keep you from being able to join with everybody else in worship until a time of cleanliness. For Jesus to associate this radiant divinity, this cleanness, with something as unclean as death is also world-shattering. That where the divinity of God is to be most clearly understood is in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ because it's in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that the divinity of God is pleased to enter and raise up that the one who has died cursed on a tree, broken uh, and bleeding, that the holiness of God does not shy away from that. The holiness of God speaks and moves and raises that one from the dead. And so when they look upon Jesus on this mountaintop experience, glowing white, radiant as can be, and Jesus has shown himself to be holy, Jesus has shown himself all the way through the first eight chapters of Mark to be a person that is absolutely 100% sold out for God, living according to his way, and yet we're supposed to find that the holiness of God is not found because of Jesus' faithfulness. It is found because God's special relationship with him even when he enters into the uncleanness of this world, death and open wounds and destruction. It is a way of saying that God's holiness is found wherever there is brokenness. And so in this passage, Jesus says to us again, says he, he, he's going to remind us again that he will die. He had just told them in chapter 8, you know, you're going to have to carry your cross. And they were probably wondering, what does he mean by that? Carry the cross, carry, you know, persecution, okay, okay, but God is going to meet you in those moments.
This Wednesday is going to be Ash Wednesday. And the ashes are a way of remembering for us that God created the world and then God created humanity in this world out of the dust, breathed life into the dust. And so one of the things we'll say is from dust you were created and to dust you will return. It's a way in which we remember on Ash Wednesday that our lives are short, that our lives are a gift of God who has breathed his spirit into the dust and given us life. But it's also the sign of the cross, And it's a reminder that we're called to carry that cross, but also that our God is with us throughout this life, no matter what it looks like. Even if all it is amounts to a bunch of dust. To be faithful to God in this life is to respond to the God who has said, I've desired to be with you and to move and work in your life precisely where you are. And there is no... Depth, there is no uncleanness, there is no sin that can separate you from where my glory wants to work and where my glory wants to be made manifest. It means we start to recognize the grace and power of God comes through the one who was crucified for us and not by any other means of power. And so this story of the transfiguration reminds us It marks for us that the words of Jesus are indeed God's intended purpose. When he talks to the disciples about carrying their cross in the chapter before, or he warns them that the Son of Man is going to suffer, they recognize that all of this is is going, God is going to work through all of this. To recognize Jesus as the Messiah is correct, but not the Messiah who comes as they expected with power and with sword, but comes with forgiveness and grace and a recognition that those who are still waiting for deliverance, those who are still yearning for hope, God is with you. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. Elijah and Moses in the story of this transfiguration remind us that uh, Jesus takes on a fuller role than that of any other prophet or teacher before them. That Jesus is far more than just a model for which we behave. Yes, he's that too, but he's far more. He is for us the very embodiment of God where we see God's grace desires to break in where we need him most. And the one who dies on the cross is in fact the son of God. And God's grace is willing to meet us where crucifixion and brokenness happens. Not all Mountaintop experiences are permanent. In fact, hardly any of them are. And the time of Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent is a reminder for us that sometimes there is struggle, sometimes there is hardship, but yet God is there. And so we enter into that season recognizing that God is still with us, God is still listening to us, and it is a time for us to intentionally seek God's will in our life. To share in that mission, sometimes we enter into the valleys trusting that God lifts us up and raises us up just as he will with the Son of Man. And we will be surprised, I think, where God is pleased to work in our life when we let him. We'll be surprised indeed at how we might come to see Jesus. The transfiguration is, it is a moment for us to ask us, how do we see Jesus in our life? How do we recognize him? What are we seeing? 
Is He more than just a teacher, more than just a historical figure? Is He Lord in our life? Do we follow Him with obedience and with sacrifice? Will we let Him be personal and real for us? I left the job at Sears to uh, go to Olivet and uh, be the um, uh, and work uh, with uh, be the religion division assistant, and it was great. And it was wonderful. And I loved that working with peers, working with my teachers, and it was it was a blast before I went to seminary. And I thought I would never think about that job again. Uh, but later that year, there was a. Um, about a year later, there was a funeral service, and I had to go to a funeral, a family member of Jen's. And I went to that funeral, and, um, uh, and, uh, and I'm standing out in the lobby, and lo and behold, I look, and I'm surprised two people walk in that I had seen when I worked at Sears, my boss and a coworker. And I thought, well, this is weird. What are you guys doing here? And they said, oh, hi, Tim, good to see you. Uh, and, and he points, uh, and my boss points to a co-worker and says, his family members passed away, I'm here for this funeral. I say, wait, what? Turns out I was working all alongside Jen's uncle and had no clue. <laughs> and so there is a moment in which the way in which now I got to see this person changed. Totally different relationship, a totally different way of interacting. Or before we were just people working together, trying to make it through the day, to now we're family. And uh, the story of the transfiguration of Jesus is a way for us to come and recognize the faith that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ can be something more than just, oh, it's something I hold on to each day, but something that says it is the impetus for how I'm going to live that I will be able to recognize that Jesus has invited me into his family, that Jesus is, is, is my Lord and Savior, and it changes and alters my trajectory. It is who uh, he is, and he has called me to embrace and fully recognize that God has said, I love you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, you matter to me, and you can be a part of the family of God. In a moment, we're going to receive communion. And when we do, we, uh, I always say this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken for you. And then I say this is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ which was shed for you. And according to the Old Testament rules, to encounter shed blood, to encounter bleeding, is to encounter uncleanness. It's to encounter uh, something that should separate us from God. Yet we take these segments and recognize that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's holiness and God's grace is pleased to enter into our lives in the moments where we feel most separated from God. And God says, I love you. You matter. Come into my family. You are welcomed here. And so you are welcome to the table to recognize that precisely where we are, God's grace is there with you. And let us see in him the very impetus for how we are going to continue to live today, seeing him as our Lord and our Savior and the one who we follow. Let's pray together. God, I, I, I'm praying for your help today. Praying for your help this coming week. Lord, uh, you know the seasons of life we get into. You know the patterns we get into. You know... Uh, the distance that sometimes is created by 
just going through the motions, just doing the next thing, just making it through a day sometimes. But yet you are the God who's desired to draw near to us. You are the God who has said, I'm more than just an idea. I am your Lord, I am your Savior, I am the one who wants to be with you every step, every minute, every breath of every day. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray today that you enter into those moments again. Change how we see and how we approach and how we think about you. May you be Lord of our life. May you be our God, our source of strength, the one we turn to when we need you. Thank you again for this passage of Scripture. Lord, would you make your Son, Jesus Christ, more known to us than has been before. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us in this next season. As we engage in in a practice that hopefully helps us warm up to the way in which you are going to reveal yourself to us, help us through it all, Lord, to find that you love us and you are with us. Thank you again for your grace. Amen. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God richly bless you as you serve him today.